0: You're we're listening to radio Lab. radio Lab
1: from New York Public Radio. Public Radio WNYC,
2: W-N-Y-C. <laughs> and
1: NPR.
3: This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumrad, and I'm Robert Krulwich. And today our program is about memory.
4: Oh my god! Hello. Hey, we're the radio people. Yeah, please, you want to see the furniture?
3: I think most people think
5: about memory kind of like are interested in is filing yeah, yeah. cabinet, a file cabinet in your brain. I'm looking for a fairly large capacity. This is traditional style. Something happens in your life. This is real wood.
4: Yeah, this is real wooden files. You
5: file it away. Oh, this is pretty good. Yeah. Then later, when you want to remember something, you, you flip back through the files. This and file. You, there's the one. This one? Yeah, you pick it up. Oh, yes, I recall. Yeah. And there it is. That's the memory. Can you lock it?
4: Yeah. you have the key.
5: Sure, sometimes you forget where you filed it. Let me see if I can. But it's there. I can't Somewhere. However, when we asked scientists about this analogy, they pretty much all said,
6: No. 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 The
7: filing cabinet
3: analogy was just completely wrong. Period. Well, maybe that's because your metaphor is a little outdated, frankly. (laughs) I think of memory as more like a a hard drive. Here we are, about to go into B&H. You might find it at a tech store. (sighs) So much gear. Can you show me your hard drives? Like your brain is basically a biological disk drive. This little one is 320 gigabytes. How big is big these days for a hard drive? And everything you do. Up to two terabytes. Everything you see. Could I put all the images I've ever seen in my life, could it go onto this hard drive? Um, Somehow, all that experience gets stored in your head in some kind of neural code. Digital information is stored Mm. in zeros and ones. Then later, when you want to go back to it, you just find the right file, call it right up, and there it is.
8: On your computer screen,
3: your memory, just as you left.
9: It. The way you put it in, the way you take it out, it's all the same.
3: Never changes. Never
9: changes.
6: Zeros and ones.
3: But again, if you ask scientists about this analogy, they'll tell you no, nope.
6: nope. no, wrong. Memory isn't like that. Memory is not an inert stack of you know zeros and ones. Malfunction.
5: System is shutting down. Uh, well, if neither of those metaphors are. An apt description of memory, then, well, how should
3: we think about memory? Well, maybe, and this is what we're going to look at this hour maybe it's not as mundane as those metaphors would suggest. Maybe memory is
6: more creative than that. Creative? Yes. Yep. On a literal level, it's an act of creation. Yeah, exactly.
4: We're reconstructing those memories.
6: Construction. construction, Maybe it's more like painting or sculpture. Everyone's constantly their own artist. We take bits
4: and pieces of experience. Some
6: things get sharpened, other things leveled. And infused with imagination and... Out
4: of that, construct. 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 What feels like a recollection.
6: It's a a beautiful process.
3: It's, It's unbelievable. Okay, we'll see (laughs) all that in the next hour coming up. Right. This is Radiolab. And later in the show, by the way, a truly unbelievable story of amnesia. But let's begin as simply as we can. What is a memory? Where do you find a memory? Where do you go to find it? There's a scientist uh, we met, Joe Ledoux, who works at NYU, who started looking when he was very young in the most obvious place.
7: As a child, I worked in my father's uh, meat market, and... The way the the cows were slaughtered in those primitive days was with um, a 22 rifle they'd shoot him in the head shoot him in the head yeah and my job was to clean out the uh, clean the brains
3: this makes a convenient beginning to the story because perhaps the, the texture of the brain is very fun to play with while the young ludu had his fingers in the cow's brain you stick your fingers in there and had the sense that I was reaching into the cow's soul. Maybe he was also thinking, where in that
7: mess are the cow's memories? These rough membranes over it and just strip it. But can I touch a memory? Can I pinch it between my fingers? One bullet. One bullet. One tiny little bullet, and my job was to go in and, and find it and remove it because if you were eating brains, you didn't want to chomp down on lead.
3: In any case, Ledoux developed a thing for brains. And many years later, in college, he'd get another uh, chance. Taking courses in psychology. A professor of his asked him to come into the lab studying the brain mechanism. and work on so rat brain. brains. And no and, bullets involved. This time he really would be I got searching for topic. memories. And I got hooked on it. You with me? Yep. All right. So it was the 60s, right? Ledoux was in school. And it was an interesting time for the field he was about to enter. Scientists had just discovered this drug. They found that if you give this particular drug to... I think it was probably done in goldfish first. Yeah, give it to a goldfish. Squirt a little in the tank. Into the water. Suddenly, the goldfish uh, can't make a memory. After a goldfish has learned something. They'll swim around, have all kinds of experiences, but later, remember nothing. They won't form a long-term memory for it. What does a goldfish learn? Ah, I actually have no idea. (laughs) But apparently they do learn stuff, except... When they have this drug in their system, in which case they'll learn stuff and forget it immediately. Oh. And the implications of this were huge. Oh, yeah. According to uh, science writer Jonah Alaire. Absolutely. Because now, for the first time, scientists could say that a memory,
6: well, it's a real thing. It's a physical thing. It's not simply an idea. It's a physical trace left in your brain. A trace made largely of... Proteins. You know, proteins are the building blocks of memory. Well, how do they know that? No, because of that drug? It's called anisomycin. The amnesia-inducing one? hmm What it does is target proteins. It prevents new proteins from being formed. It busts them up.
3: Uh, and that means what exactly? Well, no proteins, no memory. Well, let me give you an example okay. of how all this works. And this is something Ledoux ended up doing after college. The methodology, can we start there? Sure. He would take a rat, put it in a box, then play it a tone. Just a five kilohertz uh, pure tone. Sort of like boop. Something like that, yeah. Now imagine you're this rat. Mm-hmm. Your entire world is in this box, and suddenly, a sound, as if from God. And then the sound stops, and you're like, what was this? Ow! Hey! He shocked me on my feet! The shock is, you know, a mild electric shock. I mean, it's less than getting static electricity. Yeah? This guy who works in Ledoux's lab. Hi, I'm David Bush. He actually uh, demonstrated it for me. All right, so what? Or on me. What I'm going to do is have you put your fingers on there. He made me uh, touch the bottom of the cage. Right. I'm putting my fingers on the bottom of the cage. I'm a little scared. Yeah, yeah. Ah! It's really not that bad. It's like <laughs> static electricity, really. <laughs> how? If you're you, if you're a rat, it might be a whole nother thing. Even for a rat. Uh, but, but what's the point? What's the, why, why are we doing this? Oh, well, they're trying to make the rat form a memory. Oh. And here's how we now know that that works. It's from the rat's perspective. The moment it hears the tone and then feels the shock inside its head, A bunch of neurons start to build
6: a connection. Whenever you create a memory, it's an act of cellular construction. What
7: we're talking about now are associative memories. Associations between two things in the outside world. Between ants. Those two events have to somehow be connected.
6: It's as if you're building a bridge over a chasm.
3: And that connection... That's basically a memory. A memory is a structure that connects one brain cell to another. So the next time that the rat hears that damn tone, since inside its brain, tone brain cells are physically connected to shock brain cells, it's going to know that after this comes this. And so instead of just listening passively, it's going to freeze. The back is hunched and they're just frozen solid. Bracing itself for what is about to happen. Exactly. When Ladue and his team see the rat freeze like that, they know it is in the midst of remembering. They'll do
7: that the rest of their life.
3: For life. Lifetime memory.
6: However, if you inject a chemical into the brain that prevents these neurons from building this new architecture that a new memory requires, the rat will never form a memory, because its neurons are prevented from forming all these new proteins, which a new memory requires.
3: And so whatever the rat was doing during the injection, it'll never remember.
6: Play at the noise, and then shock it, and then play at the noise, and then shock it, and then play at the noise, and then, the noise and then, shock, it and then shock it, and the rat never learned. It'd be like, hey, what's that? Chow! Ooh, what's that? Chow! Ooh, cool, what's that? Chow! Perpetually surprised by the shock.
3: So the basic rule mm-hmm. is that if you get to the memory while it's being made, you can bust it up by inserting this drug. So the memory never is actually formed. Right, never committed to memory. Mm-hmm. But if the memory gets made... And the protein bridge is there in your mind. It's built, and built for all time. So if you have the memory in there,
5: then you cannot erase it.
3: Yes, it's about timing. If you get there Mm -hmm. first, you can erase it. But if you get there after, no. Okay. And that's what everyone thought. Mm -hmm. Until 2000. One day, Ledoux is in his office, and a guy walks in the door. The person who
7: walked through the door that day is Kareem Nader.
9: Kareem Nader? I would often go in Joe's lab and just tell him ideas
3: and stuff. This is Kareem. He's a postdoc in the lab. I went into Joe's office and said, Joe, like, what do you think would happen if... What do you think would happen if instead of giving the drug while the rat was making the memory, what if, way after the fact, we gave it the drug while it was remembering the memory? He remembered something. Could we mess with the memory then? I just thought, I mean, wouldn't it be cool if that happened? I said, well, that'll never work. He said, that's never going to uh, work. <laughs> don't waste our money. And... It was just a very naive question. Yeah, I mean, because the memory is already there. Right. You can't erase a memory that is already there. I mean, have you ever seen that movie, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? No. Mm-mm. No? Well, that's essentially what it was proposing.
9: Yeah. I mean, it, it was crazy.
3: <laughs> here at Lacuna,
9: we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure
7: of troubling memories. In this movie, Jim Carrey has all these memories he wants to get rid of. I'm here to erase Clementine Christians. And so he goes to this company that, Good morning,
4: that
10: Lacuna. performs the service. How are you today, Mr. And so
7: they uh have him in this room comfortable please try to focus on the memories and he's retrieving all these memories this is the day we met
0: hi there hi i'm clémentine
7: and each time he retrieves one I'm joel
3: they zap his brain
7: got it i love you
3: got it could we zap a memory that was already there could we go in and erase old memories that was Kareem's question. I was just looking
9: to do something conceptually challenging, just kind of fun, right, and just out there. Joe thought he was crazy. I
7: didn't think the experiment was going to work. And he said, okay, and so he went away, and he did the experiment without telling me. And
3: uh, A couple yeah, months later, Nadir walks back in the work. door. Walked in the door, he said, Joe, like, this is really crazy, but it actually worked. Yeah, it worked. Kareem said he took a rat, played at the tone... To give him a tone, and give him a mild chalk to the feet... ...so it could form a memory, tested it, just to make sure, and sure enough, when it heard the tone... froze yeah which means it had the memory good then he waited a long time 60 days 60 days yeah two months later he played the rat the tone and as it's frozen thinking oh no 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 I know what's about to happen right at that moment while it was remembering he gave it the drug and then
9: the next day we just put them back into the box and we just gave them some tones to see how afraid they were of the tones. And the ones that got the drug, they behave as if the tones doesn't mean that they're going to get anymore.
3: All of a sudden, the rat had been sent back to square one. Now it was like, ooh, what's that? Ow! Memory was gone. There's no memory. No memory at all?
6: No. That was the shocking result of the Laduna Dare experiment. That's Jonah again. The rat is already terrified of the shock. But if you inject the chemical as the rat is remembering what the sound means, the memory disappears it's as if the memory had never been there in the first place. Really?
9: Yeah. Joe
6: looked at me, and, and he just looked very surprised.
9: What exactly did you say to him? You know, holy bleep. Take a look at this, because it's so bleep crazy.
7: <laughs> it's, it took me a while to really kind of believe that it was all true.
3: Plus, Joe and others had a, had a, had a concern. Maybe this drug isn't erasing a memory. Maybe it's just giving the rat brain damage. And erasing everything. So we designed an experiment that would
7: test the specificity of these effects.
3: He wondered, could he pinpoint and extract one single memory of many? That's an interesting question. Right. The idea was to create a memory network in the rat. So in his latest study, what he did was he taught the rat to be scared of two tones, not just one. So one's like a vroom, and the other one's a like pips, the, you know, like repeating sounds of a pure tone. And he teaches the rat to be afraid of both of these tones, each one results in a Only this time, when he plays the tones 45 days later, he picks just one of them, maybe, for instance, this one, to pair with the drug. And then the next day, you test both. Mm -hmm. And only the one that was paired with the drug is affected. So you erase tone one, but not tone two? Exactly. So do, re, me, you can just erase re? That would be the idea. Wow. That really is eternal sunshine of the spotless
7: mind. Well that movie came out about 2 years after we published uh, uh-huh. the study that really got all this going. Do you think they stole from you? I don't think they stole, but maybe they were thinking along these lines and they heard, They guess. must have read it and been like, "Oh my god." There was a write-up in the Science Times and we proposed this would be a treatment for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. People who go to war
9: or have been through trauma, people haunted by Really bad memories. They just can't escape the thoughts and memories that they keep reliving.
3: How would that work in a therapy situation though? Suppose
7: you have a Holocaust victim who's lived for fifty years with these memories and you know, you would say, um, well let's talk about what went on in the camp and the day you saw, you know, Mary in the line to go to the, the chambers. You say close your eyes and just imagine.
3: Relive it. And right as you're talking about it, you swallow a pill? Yeah. More or less. And so in fact we've done that. They've done that? They have. Kareem Nader now works at McGill University in Montreal, and he has teamed up with a clinical psychologist to try this on people. And it seems that when you give this drug, as a person is remembering or reliving a traumatic event, the memory is eroded somewhat. The next time they think about it, it's not quite as painful.
9: One woman, um, she had been raped as a child by a doctor. And then when she told her mother, Uh, Her mother said she was making up stories. Wow. Apparently she never spoke to anyone about this when she used to get undressed in the dark in front of her husband. Wow. And so she came in to the clinic.
3: He says she took the drug while thinking about the trauma. And then a week later... She told the story again. And this time, it wasn't nearly as hard.
9: She improved dramatically to the point where she was telling the story on TV.
3: On TV. Uh, Wow. So she went from telling no one about this, including herself, T- being so open that she could tell thousands of people?
9: Yeah, she just felt that the emotional part was no longer overwhelming her.
3: Some ethicists say that it's wrong
7: to mess with memory, but, you know, that's what therapy is, too. It's a process of changing your evaluation of situation, learning new things, storing new things. At one point she said, you know,
9: we've given her back herself.
5: Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I know that she f- feels better, but there's something slightly creepy about this. Yeah. That she feels better because something is now missing in her, something that troubled her, but she's been, in a way, a, a part of her has been deleted. I mean, look, I think of myself really, I'm Robert Krolwich, and I'm, you know, a certain age, but really what I am is I'm a string of memories. Yeah, I mean, that is as close to a way of describing the real me as I can find. Mm-hmm. I own those memories, and they define me but you're saying that you can come to me when I'm already formed, when I'm already there. You can give me a shot, and you can
3: fundamentally change me. There's an assumption in what you're saying which is actually kind of wrong. There really isn't anything like a real memory. I mean, think about it. If you can erase a memory while it's being created, that's how we started, and now we learn you can erase a memory while it's being remembered using the same drug... Yeah. What that really means is that every time you are remembering something, you're actually recreating it. That's the only reason the drug works. And so if you're recreating it each time, then each time you're remembering something, it's a brand new memory.
5: Well, no, but I've always kind of assumed that underneath all this remembering, there's some kind of special, absolutely original memory locked in a vault
3: somewhere. No. No.
6: That is the crazy implication of this experiment. That the act of remembering. On a literal level, it's an act of creation. Every memory is rebuilt anew every time you remember it.
3: And not only is it an act of creation, as Jonah says, Kareem would say,
6: it's an act of imagination. Every
9: time you remember something, you're changing the memory a little bit. we are always changing the memory slightly.
6: You think you're remembering something that took place 30 years ago. Actually, what you're remembering is that memory reinterpreted in the light of today, in the light of now. So
5: does that mean that there's no such thing Thing as a memory for all time that hides in a secret vault somewhere that all you've got is the most recent recollection
6: of the experience. Yes.
5: Well, then how do I know that any memory is verifiably true?
6: You don't. You don't. And one of the ironies of of this research is that the more you remember something, in a sense, the less accurate it becomes. Hmm. The more it becomes about you and the less it becomes about what actually happened. So let's do something. Imagine...
5: A couple in love and it's their first kiss he kisses her and she kisses him back she remembers the kiss of course mm-hmm. and he remembers the kiss of course mm-hmm. as they go through the rest of their romance and the next uh, 36 years together the kiss will essentially become replaced by two independently re-embroidered and
6: increasingly dishonest kisses assuming they think about the kiss enough Um, that's, that's kind of what the theory implies.
5: But certainly there's gotta be somewhere between the man and the woman. There's gotta be some true kiss, or is that, that kiss just gone?
6: That, that true kiss vanished the minute their lips separated. As soon as reality happens, it begins diverging in, you know, all our different brains. On a very synaptic level. Here's where you cue the really sad music. Hmm. They, they just grow slowly farther and farther apart.
5: Well, let me do it a different way. Let's suppose that Joan and Bob kiss, and then they part. It's a Mm. great kiss. Uh And then they never think about it again. I mean, it was a great kiss in the moment, but they never think about it
2: again.
5: 30 years later, Bob is in a railroad station. Joan comes out of a train. Their eyes meet. Bob sees Joan,
6: sees her eyes, and remembers suddenly that kiss. That memory's more honest than if he'd been thinking about the kiss every day of his life since. Oh, you
3: know, that's even sadder. You know what, but it's true. That's what scientists say. Absolutely. We had
7: a, a conference last week, and uh, Yadin Dudai was here, and he proposed that the safest memory, a you know, memory that's uncontaminatable, is one that exists in a patient with amnesia.
11: What I meant is that there is a sort of a paradox.
3: This is Yadin. This is Yadin.
11: And I'm a professor in Israel.
3: Reporter Ann Hepperman tracked him down for us.
11: Intuitively, you think if you use a memory, you know, you know better because you remember it better, you recall it better, you know the details better, and so on and so on, but this is not what science shows. If you have a memory, the more you use it, the more you're likely to change it. So if you never use your memory, it's secured. So taking it a bit farther, The safest memories are the memories which are in the brain of people who cannot remember.
3: Okay, well, I guess we should go to break now.
5: Oh Yeah, so we should tell you that Joan Allaire is the
3: author of a new book called Proust, was a neuroscientist. And Joseph Ledoux from NYU, before him, he also wrote a book called The Emotional Brain, and Kareem Nader, uh, I don't he, think he's he written, hasn't a book, written a book, <laughs> but he will. I'm sure he will. And also, thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman.
5: And if you need more information or you want to hear anything again, one word, radiolab.org.
3: Radiolab will continue in a moment. Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumrad. And I'm Robert Krilowicz. And today on Radio Lab, we're looking at um, memory and uh... forgetting. Forgetting. Right, forgetting. And we're looking at how these two processes, remembering and forgetting, are intertwined. And writer Andre Kudrescu, has an idea about this.
12: The other day, a friend of mine was explaining how she had to move these pixels around her computer and had to add 20 megabytes of memory to handle the operation. I had the disquieting thought that all this memory she was adding had to come from somewhere. Maybe it was coming from me because I couldn't remember a thing that day. And then it became blindingly obvious. All the memory that everybody keeps adding to their computers comes from people. Nobody can remember a damn thing. Every time somebody adds memory to their machine, thousands of people forget everything they knew. Americans are singularly devoid of memory these days. We don't remember where we came from, who raised us, when our wars used to be, what happened last year, last month, or even last week. School children remember practically nothing. I take the Greyhound bus every week, and I swear half the people on there don't know where they got on or where they're supposed to get off. The explanation is simple. Computer companies are stealing human memory to stuff their hard drives. Greyhound, I believe, has some kind of contract with IBM to steal the memory of everyone riding the bus. They are probably connected by a cable or something. Every hundred miles, poof, another 500 megabytes gets sucked out of the passengers' brains. The computers' thirst for memory is bottomless. The more they suck, the more they need. Eventually, we'll all be walking around with a glazed look in our eyes, trying to figure out who it is we live with and then we'll forget our names and addresses and we'll just be milling around trying to remember them. The only thing visible about us will be these cables sticking out of our behinds, feeding the scraps of our memory to Computer Central somewhere in Oblivion, USA. I think it's time for all these memory-sucking companies to start some kind of system to feed and shelter us when we forget how to eat, walk, and sleep.
3: Andre Kadrescu, with an essay from the book 101 Damnations. And he actually has a new book of short essays about New Orleans called New Orleans Mon Amour. Anyways, Robert. Yes. Mon Amour. <laughs> Andre, cr- he's trying to make a point about, you know, historical amnesia in America and whatever. But what if we were to take what he's saying Literally, mm-hmm. like we would, and explore it. Like we know you can add, uh, subtract a memory. We did that earlier. But what if you could add a memory? Like actually add a memory in back into a brain that wasn't there before. What do you before? mean by what do you mean by add memory? Implant a false memory. Ooh.
4: Count there. Okay, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. My name is Elizabeth Loftus. I'm on the faculty at the University of California, Irvine.
3: Depending on who you talk to, Elizabeth Loftus is either a hero or Dr. Evil. Her research, which goes back more than two decades, has completely changed how we think about memory. Well, for many... I spoke with her recently about it.
4: For many years, I and other psychologists were doing experiments in which we distorted the memories of events that people had actually experienced. So we would take somebody who'd seen a simulated auto accident or a simulated crime and we would alter the details in their memory report. We'd make people believe that they saw a car go through a stop sign instead of a yield sign and we found it was not that hard to alter people's memories of these previously experienced events. But more recently, we've gone even further and shown that you can plant entirely false memories into the minds of people. Memories for things that didn't happen. Like what? Well, we planted a memory that when you were about five or six years old, you were lost for an extended period of time in a shopping mall. You were frightened, you were crying. And ultimately you were rescued... Are you lost? ...by an elderly person. we we'll find your mother. ...and reunited with the family. Mommy, there
3: you are! And, and how did you implant that memory?
4: We told them that we had talked to their parents and that we'd learned some things that happened to them when they were uh, a child.
3: they basically interview the subjects about their past. Yeah. They'd say... Hey, do you remember that time when you were on the bike and you fell? I wish they were making up. No, no, no. They would start with a true Uh-oh. story. They would start with a true story. And then they'd say, hey, do you remember that time? It, which was true. Remember that other time? Which was true. And that other time? Which was true. And somewhere in the middle of all of those true stories, uh-huh. they would slip in the lie.
4: The false made-up story about being lost and frightened and crying. Uh. And in that particular study, we found that about a quarter of our subjects fell sway to the suggestion and they adopted it as their own memory.
3: A quarter of her subjects. when she you check with them later? now had in their head a memory of being lost and then found in the mall that never happened. I would have been the number one guy in that quarter.
4: (laughs) What is happening in this situation is people take their image of an actual shopping center, actual family members, and they construct an experience out of these bits and pieces. Investigators uh, in this field have made people believe that they had accidents at family weddings or that they were a victim of a vicious animal attack or that they nearly drowned and had to be rescued by a lifeguard. Even with these pretty traumatic ideas you can make people believe that that it happened to them
5: actually uh, we had this very same experience uh, when i was in law school we had this professor he was a professor of property and he was doing a lecture and in the middle of the lecture and this was not you know in any way we were not prepared for this yeah uh-huh. all of a sudden the guy zips into the class in the very right front of the class grabs something from the professor and then runs out They stole it stole it i don't even remember what it was but it happened so suddenly uh-huh. and professor berger said oh my god did any of you see the curly haired guy just went and uh, would you just sort of threw it in Mm. the curly haired guy but it turned out that what he called the curly haired guy when the man came back later to present himself was not a curly haired guy at all he was a straight haired guy
3: so the whole thing was staged
5: yeah we were all eyewitnesses and we all had been coached inadvertently to see
3: something that wasn't true and we all saw it. What I find interesting, though, is why that kind of suggestion works so well on memory. And Kareem Nader, the guy we heard from earlier, scientist, mm-hmm. he puts it this way: Suppose you witness a crime, and the police ask you some questions later, and they say, "Did you see a red Camaro leave the scene?" And you're thinking about, you're thinking about going, "Yeah, not, you know, no red Camaro." No, didn't see one. But then maybe the policeman asks you again, "Are you sure you didn't see one?" And suddenly you're like, well... I think, well, maybe there was, maybe I forgot. You start to question it, because as he puts it, when you are remembering something, the memory is unstable. The memory comes back up to this unstable state. It's being rebuilt, recreated, and in that moment, someone, without even meaning to, can slide something new in.
9: And so as the memory gets like restored with the image of the red Camaro, the next day when the judge asks you, was there somebody
3: with... A was there a red Camaro there? From your perspective, it's, it's a real memory. Yeah, but what's, what's so fascinating to me about, about that phenomenon, assuming it's true, yeah. is that the red Camaro that is now in your head yeah. is a vivid, technicolor red yeah, Camaro. You can see the light bounce off the hood. It just feels yeah. real. You can taste the air. It's amazing how detailed these things can be. Which is why when someone contradicts your memory and says, it didn't happen that way, you're like yeah did screw you well it's also it feels like a robbery right right. they're taking it from you and in fact this got Elizabeth Loftus in a lot of trouble back in the mid 80s there were a lot of people I don't know if you remember this coming forward with Mm -hmm. repressed memories like I was abused by a shaitanistic cult and performed rituals and whatever all that stuff oh right I remember that we now know a lot of those memories were imagined and she says at the time she was one of the only people to raise her hand and say uh excuse me and it got her in a lot of trouble
4: I've never really seen anything like the wrath of hostility. When I began to write articles and publish on this subject, it was pretty amazing, the the vitriol.
3: What kind of things would they do or say?
4: Oh, that, you know, my life was threatened. Armed guards would have to be hired at universities where I was being asked to speak. I had the bomb squad at my house on one occasion... Uh, One day I was uh, taking an airplane flight and uh, when the woman sitting in the seat next to me learned who I was, uh, she started to swap me with her newspaper. And it was kind of hard to to extract myself from her because, uh, you know, airplanes are crowded places. You know, the fact of the matter is memory is malleable. And we might as well face the truth.
5: Um, Well, now, it's... It's, this isn't to say that you could have a repressed memory and it, might, it just might be true. I Not mean, All repressed memories are false. Sure, sure. Uh, and in that regard, th- this next story you're going to hear, um, I, I, can't, I don't want to tell you much about it. I'll just tell you that it's
3: about a painter. And it's produced by uh, Nata Parain.
1: The first thing you notice in Joe Ando's studio is horses. A big milky one straight ahead, sepia once to the left and right, staring at you like they don't care about you, but they don't mind you either. They're really like dreams of horses.
2: I never paint horses that are being manipulated with a bridle or anything. They're mostly just hanging out. He he comforts me to have paintings of horses around.
1: Over the past ten years, the horses have multiplied, and Joe doesn't even know why he keeps painting them. I
2: guess it's kind of like... I just kind of tune it in or something, or like you're tuning your guitar, you know, you ding, 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 into, you know, the two strings resonate, you know, and you know it's in tune.
1: In a Manhattan studio, surrounded by stacks of these animals, you start forgetting you're in Chelsea. Maybe you're in a stable instead. Sometimes even the gesso starts to smell like mulch and hay. When Joe got here in the mid-'80s, no galleries were offering solo or group shows, And like all the other hundreds of artists in New York, he was struggling.
2: I'd been in New York for about six years, and and nothing was happening. And I was beginning to think nothing was going to happen. And uh, I was, you know, I had a kid, and I was married. and uh, So I, I stopped painting for a few months, which is a long time for me. And I missed it. So I started painting again for myself. You know, after you know, the dishes were done, all my domestic chores were fulfilled, I'd sit down at the dining table and,
1: and paint. And what showed up on these canvases were pastures. Lush and open. The kind of pastures you'd see on a postcard from somewhere in Wyoming. Or in this case, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Joe grew up.
2: Well, I can show you some of my paintings. Me and my buddies, we'd, we'd park out here and we'd get high in the evening, like this is a summer evening, you know?
1: Joe runs his hand through the air in front of a massive painting leaning against the wall. It's of a field at dusk. It's like he's showing me property.
2: And we would trip and we would contemplate the universe, you know?
1: Like, what? what do you think's those stars? What's back,
2: what's behind them?
1: It's one of those fields with thick grass that's matted where people might have laid down. There are some trees to lean against, separating the grass and the road.
2: Our high school sat on Route 66, right on the edge of Tulsa. And, you know, you pull out of school at lunchtime and you take a left and you could drive right down Route 66 into the heart of Tulsa. And you could take a right and you could go out to the... There's farmland. You know, this was in the early 70s, and, and we would course take a ride
1: so when Joe stopped trying to paint for anyone else he drifted backwards into his adolescence all those breezy right turns out of the school parking lot
2: and ultimately this is what people lined up for
1: Joe had one show and then another one studio visits from private collectors then calls from the Metropolitan Museum of Art the Whitney even sitcom art directors. All the while, he kept on painting his deserted landscapes. Then, as he describes it.
2: About 10 years ago, horses started showing up in my repertoire, so to speak.
1: The pastures weren't empty anymore. They started to draw mares and foals to themselves, some in the far distance, some so close that they're out of focus.
2: And then, uh, about a year ago, I, was, I started painting girls.
1: Joe's first attempt at the human form. The girls are all on their own canvases. They're undressed, stepping out of a darkened space. Some of them look like they're about to say something.
2: And I'm just following my gut. I'm painting these pictures, and I don't really know why. You know, and after a few months, I was sitting back and I was sort of reflecting. I was looking at all these things. And I noticed that they all looked the same, they all looked like the same girl.
1: Looking over all the paintings in the studio, they clearly are the same girl, but in a dozen different angles. She has the look of a sixteen year old in nineteen seventy two.
2: Like my first love kind of thing.
1: Her name was Kay.
2: It was like my first soulmate. The first you know how the first time you feel like you're not alone. She's beautiful.
1: Oval face, almond eyes that look right into you.
2: And then I remember this moment with her and me and the horse, in the car.
1: Joe realized he'd been painting a memory, the fragments of one afternoon 30 years earlier, each ingredient emerging slowly.
2: We were parked in the back seat of my Nova, 67 Nova, in this pasture, and we were in the back seat, and a horse looked in the window. It was just like this moment. It was just like, you know, this horse is there, and she's there, and... And uh, I was in love. I had a beautiful naked girl there with me in the back seat of my car. You know, it just didn't get any better. I, I was skipping out of school, so I wouldn't have to, speak. I wouldn't have to be in class. Uh, you know, I, had, I was on easy street. I probably had five dollars in my pocket. You know, enough gas to get home. I had some of my cigarettes. I don't know.
1: Why did you break up?
2: I think I cheated on her. I think that's why. No. I think that's what happened. I went to the lake and I did something I shouldn't have. Right, you know, in front of somebody she knew. She moved away to Minnesota for some reason. And uh, she called me one day. And we, we went to, went out dancing, and we drank beer and danced. And, and I took her home to the place she was staying. She was staying with some, some friends in this old house behind an appliance store. And I dropped her off, and she looked at me like this says, aren't you coming in? And I says, no, I have to go see um, somebody else. I forget her name. You had a new girlfriend? New girlfriend. And she lit a cigarette, slammed the door, and she died in a fire that night. I got a call the next morning.
1: A car door slams. A girl turns and looks over her shoulder at a guy she won't be seducing that night a fragment of a moment frozen in time.
2: I mean, and the, th- the funny thing is, she was so spirited. If anybody was gonna come back and haunt me, she would. How old were you? I'm like 21. How old was she? She was probably 19.
1: That day in the car, with his girl and the horse looking in, Joe thinks the memory of that one afternoon in Tulsa might be some sort of post-traumatic pleasure syndrome an echo that bounced off Jupiter and caught up with him again.
2: And then again, they're just paintings too, they're just color and these are just excuses for me to make another painting.
1: There's something alluring about Joe Ando's paintings. They draw you in. Maybe that's why people pay big money for them. But the only thing that anyone who wasn't there in the field with Joe, Kay and the horse can do is look. From the outside into an impenetrable past that's finished. That memory, that story, is self sustaining and whole, looping endlessly in an alternate universe.
2: That's reason I don't title these, I don't put you know, there's no there's no there's no ending, there's no beginning. Just every day and stir it up again. Joe Ando has
5: a new memoir, it's called Jubilee City, and it is published by William Morrow. We will
10: continue in a moment.
3: This is Radio Lab. I'm Jan Abumrad. And I'm Robert Quilwich. And on
5: this show, we've been talking about...
3: Uh, memory. Remembering and forgetting.
5: forgetting yeah. Yes. And this next story is about the most drastic version of this particular back-and-forth that I can think of. It, I, it just can't get any worse than this. This is a story of a man named Clive Waring. It was told to me by the famous neurologist and writer Oliver Sacks. Hey, first of all, who was Clive Waring when he was well?
11: Um, he was a, um, a gifted musician and musicologist who was really a pioneer in Renaissance music, especially the music of, of Orlando's Lassus.
0: He had a group called the London Lassus Ensemble.
5: This is Deborah, Clive's wife.
0: And in every concert, his signature tune was Musica Dei Donum, music the gift of God
5: boy music the gift of god that's sort of interesting exactly and then
11: what happened then rather suddenly in march of 85 he became ill it began she says with just a headache
0: and he often had headaches because he often overworked so it was nothing out of the ordinary
11: but it didn't go away
0: we called the doctor and the local doctors ...pronounced that it was a very bad flu bug.
11: The nature of the illness was not clear, uh, nor its gravity.
0: Yes, on the fifth day of the headache, he was suddenly out of it.
11: Suddenly he couldn't remember things.
0: He didn't know my name, didn't know his home address. When the
11: diagnosis was made of a herpes encephalitis, the damage had been done. He was left,
5: says Oliver. With the most severe amnesia ever documented.
11: This is a man who, at least when things were very severe, would forget something in the blink of an eyelid. It's very hard to imagine what this must have been like. His wife, Deborah, wrote about it,
5: though, in a book of her own, and she says, his ability to perceive what he saw and heard was unimpaired, but he didn't seem to be able to retain any impression of anything for more than a blink. The view before the blink, utterly forgotten. Each blink, each glance away and back brought him an entirely new view.
0: Well, every moment is his first waking moment. It's a long time since I've seen anything. My eyes are open today for the first time. There is no other moment for Clive except this one. In fact, I can't
11: remember now what was going on this morning or why I was here. I've never seen a thing.
5: This is Clive from a documentary filmed a year after he got sick.
11: has no memory for me at all.
10: Anything at all. I don't know what? what the hell's
0: going on. What's wrong with you?
5: You can hear his wife, Deborah, trying for the umpteenth time to explain to him what happened. I've never seen anyone at
0: all. This is one of the things that's wrong with you. There's all that he
5: can, that can feel that is that he's things. not there. i know
0: never seen
5: That he's that. That's been nowhere.
0: I've
11: been blind the whole time. I've been deaf the whole time. No sense of touch.
0: You've been conscious, but the, the brain hasn't been able to not store. Not as far well as
11: I'm concerned. The conscious actually means the, 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 the person involved is actually connected with it.
0: Yes. is That hasn't happened. Not, not being able to store everything that you experience is being lost, it's fading away. It's, not, in it's the
11: brain. not
0: registering, that's it's right, it's not making any impact, it's not leaving a trace or an imprint on the brain. So it happens and then it fades.
11: Proust has a, a wonderful description of waking up from deep sleep in a hotel room, a strange room, and perhaps feeling confused and not knowing where you are, what's around you, or not even knowing who you are. He says that memory comes like a rope let down from heaven to draw one out of the abyss of unbeing. No such rope is available for Clive. But the staff at the hospital try to help.
0: We... Put a diary by his bed, and we initially wrote in it, "You are in St Mary's Hospital, Paddington. It is etc etc." Um, and then we encouraged Clive to to write things down.
11: So he starts to keep a journal. Uh, he is extremely intent on trying to um, document his state. He is very very precise. He
0: would look at his watch to see what time was this momentous event occurring of first consciousness. And so he would write down, 10.06, awake first time. And then have the same sensation and put, 10.07, awake first time, truly awake first time. Ignore the last entry. Now I'm awake. This is the first real awakeness. And so the, the diaries are line by line, a succession of astonished awakenings People's entries in the diary are rubbish. What does that mean? I've no idea. Did you write that?
11: I've no conscious consciousness conscious knowledge <laughs> of it at all, no. for showing it me now for the first time.
0: But it's, is it your handwriting? Yes,
11: it is. But I know nothing about it at all.
0: So how do you think it got there?
11: I don't. I presume the doctors don't know.
0: But you must... No, have... I
11: haven't. I haven't seen the book at all till now.
0: No, I'm. all I've said... No, was... that's
11: mean. that means I haven't seen it I have no knowledge of it at all. That's all. There's no knowledge of that book at all. It's entirely right. new to me.
0: But you put, who would
11: put that apart? I don't know, do you but you? no, no, know. no, no, no. Oh, I have to say use intelligence, for I have to I have bloody thing. It well, seems as do. about as horrible as anything I could imagine. Yes. Clive uh, gets a sense of, of deep horror many, many times a day. Same as death. No difference between day and night, no thoughts at all. No one quite knows what to do with someone with amnesia. I've never seen any human beings since I've been ill. I don't remember sitting down on this chair, for example. They're not mad, they're not retarded. It's precisely like death.
5: Clive has now suffered with this total amnesia for more than 20 years.
11: Can you imagine just to have one night 20 years long? With no dream? That's what it's been like. Just like death. In that sense, it's been totally painless. And yet
5: somehow... Some things have sustained. The love he has for his wife, Deborah, remained part of him. But even though he doesn't remember, for example, his children's names, he doesn't remember anything about his immediate past or even his relatively distant past, when Deborah walks into the hospital room and he
11: sees her, what happens? He um, gasps with relief and excitement and they hug and he kisses her with, with enormous passion he is suddenly being rescued from the abyss there's suddenly something and someone familiar i not you i've never seen anyone
10: talk
11: she goes home and the phone is ringing she's just visited him uh, yeah and she may find she might find 20 calls on, on 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 the message machine from a man who doesn't know she's been there.
5: Now, darling. It's Clive here. It's ten to seven. I haven't spoken to anybody in this place. I know nothing about this case at all. I just want to speak to you, please. Can can you come and see me, please, as soon as you possibly can? I don't care about anybody else in the world to you, please. Please come. You. Fourteen minutes later. This is Clive here. I don't want to speak to anyone else. I don't want to speak to you, darling. Can can you come and see me, please? you yet, I want to. Please come, Bye bye. Eleven minutes later. This is Clive here.
11: I have no idea what's going on. If any way you can get to me tonight, please do come. I just want to see you, please. Please come, please come, darling. It's Clive here. I don't care about anyone else. This is Clive here. No. In case you don't recognize my voice. He does not remember her in every way. He may fail to recognize her if she just passes. He cannot describe her. He may forget her name, but he does not forget her embrace, her warmth, her love, her kisses, her caring for him.
10: So the
5: question is, what happened here that he could forget everything, it seems, but not her? When I asked Oliver, he referred to an experiment, a particular experiment.
11: Um, Well, this was a famous or or infamous experiment done by clapper who was a a French neurologist at the beginning, and this was done at the beginning of the 20th century.
8: And there was this famous patient who basically had a version of the the memory problem that was in the film Memento. That's science writer Stephen Johnson. Basically, she couldn't remember anything longer than kind of five or ten minutes. It would just disappear. And every day she would go see her doctor and he would greet her and she would say hello and introduce herself and he would say, well, we see each other every day, but she, would, she wouldn't remember. And then one day, this is kind of a funny story because it's not exactly what you want your doctor doing. One day what he did was he concealed, as he was shaking her hand, he concealed a little thumbtack in his palm and reached and shook her hand and pricked her hand and she you know recoiled and said well you're a terrible doctor and then the next day when she came back again and didn't know who he was didn't recognize him at all as usual and said hello and introduced herself and then he reached out to shake her hand and she paused and she had this instinctive kind of feeling like there's some kind of threat here if she had no memory if she could remember who this guy was how could she somehow remember this, this threat, the threat posed by the, the pinprick in the palm.
11: Well, this is Oliver's notion. And I think memories of, uh, of pain and joy, uh, I, I think, are sort of primordial.
5: Deep down in the oldest parts of our brains, Oliver thinks, there may be a place for the memories that matter the most.
11: And I, I, I like the idea of a sort of subcortical safe vault.
5: For Clive, protected in the vault, out of reach from his amnesia, was love for his wife And one thing more.
0: Yeah, I'd taken him off the ward to get some peace because he was hypersensitive to noise. And uh, the most peaceful place happened to be the chapel. And we picked up an old hymn book. And for want of anything better to do, and because Clive talked jumble most of the time at that stage, I began to sing.
5: And all of a sudden, like it was the most natural thing in the
0: world. He joined in. He could sing. I was amazed that he could still read music and sing.
5: Was it a tentative sort of stumbling thing? No, no, just or like
0: falling off a log.
5: Full voice, strong, everything.
0: Yep. Did you
5: want to sing another?
0: Oh, you bet. And another? Yeah, absolutely. And
5: if he could do that, she wondered, well, what else could he do?
0: Uh, We even brought his choir in.
5: The one he used to conduct in London.
0: To the hospital chapel. I had a hunch that if we stood Clive in front of them with a piece of music, he would be able to conduct. And it happened just as I'd hoped. His singers were flabbergasted. There was their old conductor bringing them in completely and utterly himself.
5: And almost the instant it was over, it was over. He had no memory what he'd just done. In fact, later on she showed him a tape of that very
10: performance.
0: What would you say if I told you you conducted the Lattice Ensemble last week? <laughs> That's hilarious.
11: <laughs> I thought you'd say that. That sounds
3: hysterical.
11: <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Do you want me to prove it
3: to you? the strangest thing
5: I've ever seen. On the screen, right in front of him, there he is, on the pedestal, baton in
11: hand, and he's conducting. He is fully in the music, fully himself. So music, in a way, becomes this Proustian rope from heaven, which will recall him to himself.
5: And no one really knows why.
11: I remember that
5: now. <laughs> what music does that makes this possible, not just in Clyde, but in many others. Maybe it's something about music itself that it's so richly organized that every time you're in a song, you can feel what has been and what's about to be. Maybe Clive was just carried along in the architecture of music.
0: But when the music stops, he falls out of time. Music gives him a piece of time in which to exist.
5: Out of time, out of memory, out of himself, there's two things left. There's love, and there's the joy of music. Everything else is gone, but for some reason, those stay. Thanks to Deborah Waring, she's written a book about Clive called Forever Today, a memoir of love and amnesia. Thanks also, once again, to Oliver Sacks, who's included a piece about Clive in his new book on music and memory called Musicophilia. And thanks to Uden Associates, producers of the 1986 Jonathan Miller documentary Equinox,
3: Prisoner of Consciousness. That's our show for today. Yep. And never fear if you didn't absorb everything you just said, because you can always go to our website, Radiolab.org We will give you links there To any of the books You just mentioned And oh So you have to
5: subscribe To the podcast right? Yes
3: Radiolab.org Or go to iTunes Oh oh, one more thing Um, You can send us an email too Please Radiolab at WNYC.org That's the email address Uh I'm Chad Abumrad And I'm Robert Wilwich And this was Radiolab
10: Three new messages Message one
8: Radio Lab is produced by Jed Abumrad, senior producer Ellen Horn, assistant producer Lola Miller, production executive Dan Capella, contribution editor Janach Lehrer, production support by Sara Pellegrini, Ryan Scammell, Kat Goldberg, Evir Mitra, Mark Phillips.
10: Message two.
3: Hello, this is your computer hard drive. Thanks also to Trent Walby, Miyuki Jacaranta, Carlos Setahoe Murphy. Special thanks to Greg Gasparino, Andy Lancet, Eric John, Vince Cardino, Roderick Bowe, Alan Smith, Sam Bingman, Lorraine Maddox.
8: Thank you also for Justin Paul, Caroline Moses, Indira Etvaro, Luis Captal, Tim Cole, and Crystal Duhem. Special thanks to Mandy Shapira at B&B Photo Video Superstore. And special thanks to me, Raissa at Office Furniture Plates, good quality and the best prices in New York City.
3: And thanks to me, the computer, I am the future.
0: Message 3. Hello, this is Deborah Waring to Read Your Credits. Radio Lab is produced by WNYC New York Public Radio and distributed by NPR National Public Radio. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Annie E. Casey Foundation, helping disadvantaged children and their families connect to strong and supportive neighborhoods. Find them on the web at aecf.org. Also, Anne and John Herman celebrating the Breakthrough Collaborative involving middle school students in learning and older students in teaching at BreakthroughCollaborative.org and the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, on the web at FordFound.org. This is NPR National Public Radio.
10: End of message.